TED Audio Collective. I was kind of overwhelmed because uh, Men in Black had been 200 shots. This was now going to be 2,000 shots. I had 10 animators on Men in Black. Now I was going to need 65 animators on Phantom Menace. It was an enormous... Huge undertaking. A huge undertaking, and I started to really panic about it. This is Rob Coleman. He was the animation director on the Star Wars prequels, which means that he was the guy tasked with transforming Ahmed Best into Jar Jar Binks. Truthfully, I didn't know we could pull it off. It's a tall task to put a, an animated character into a live-action movie standing, standing, he says in quotation marks, next to Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman, who are naturally alive and engaging and amazing at their craft. And... For our audience members, there's a little lizard voice in the back going, is it real? Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? Do I believe in it? Am I engaged in it? This tall task ended up becoming so tall that Rob took it to the boss. I asked to have a meeting with George up at Skywalker Ranch. And uh, I went in and, and he said, so what's the, I hear that you have a problem. I, yeah, I said, my problem, my problem is that the world has been waiting for this movie since 1983, and I uh, I don't know if I can do it. Feeling the pressure, Rob got to work. Now, plan A for Jar Jar Binks was to blend a CGI head with a bodysuit that Ahmed wore on set. But plan A was not working. It never fit perfectly. It always slid and we're talking pixels but the human eye is really good at picking up those kind of problems and it never worked rob needed a plan b so it was jeff light at ilm who came to me and said you know we have this new technology called motion capture and we could record ahmed and absolutely apply his movement and attach it to the digital jar jar so that's exactly what they did In a test, Rob had one of his senior animators match exactly what Ahmed was doing. And then Rob took that test to George Lucas. And it was there that he realized, we can match Ahmed. Look, our animators are really gifted. We can do this. So it removed that technical problem, and it sent us down the motion capture route. From day one, I could see the the incredible advantage this was going to give us and that it was going to honor George's request that it be Ahmed's performance that drove this character. It wasn't going to be invented by a bunch of animators, that he had cast Ahmed because he loved his physicality and his sense of timing and all that. Which meant that Rob worked very closely with Ahmed. He was a young, super energetic, really enthusiastic man. It was His energy was just astounding to me. I actually felt that we worked incredibly well together because we complemented each other in the in what we brought to the character. Um, that neither one of us could do the character without the other one. So Rob and his team of animators devoted themselves to making Jar Jar a reality. And by the time the film was set to debut, Rob was feeling like the Whitney Houston to Brandy's Cinderella, which is to say 
he made the impossible possible. I had lived in this amazing and nervous bubble of helping George Lucas bring these characters to life. And I had lived in that world where I was 100% focused on giving him the performance he wanted. And I knew by the end of that movie that we had achieved that. So I was on cloud nine as we went to New York City. Rob was on his way to New York to attend the Big Apple premiere of The Phantom Menace, where he was also set to do some press for the movie. And I will never forget, I was sitting in a hotel room being interviewed by Rolling Stone. I'm actually getting goosebumps. It was only then that I, it started to dawn on me that Jar Jar was not necessarily going to be the most popular character. Rob and Ahmed had the benefit of building Jar Jar Binks in a protected creative bubble. Today, we're going to take a look at what happened when that bubble burst in 1999. We'll see how the backlash against the character became chatter on the early internet. We'll see how and why that chatter was picked up by traditional media. And eventually, we will also see how it jumped from targeting the character to Ahmed himself. Welcome back to The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. I'm Dylan Marin. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. So as the day went on, uh, I started to have a lump in my stomach because I was like, oh my goodness. Feeling a bit deflated, Rob finished up press in New York and headed back to the West Coast. And then I was fortunate enough to be asked to fly back with George on his jet. Okay, brag. And so we took off from New York and we're flying back to California. And I was sitting up front and I was kind of feeling, I don't know, confused. Someone in PR had given him, back then, it's 1999, there's no iPad, it's a stack, it's a ream, 500 pages what it looked like, of all the printed reviews for the films. And I was watching George go through them. The reviews were overall not great. And a number of them did reference Jar Jar specifically. One reviewer from Variety described Jar Jar as, quote, a poor cousin to Eddie Murphy's dragon in Mulan, end quote. Now, Jar Jar was not the only issue that critics had with The Phantom Menace. But still, as Rob watched George flip through that stack of reviews, he was concerned. Over a couple hours, he read everything. And then he looked up and he waved me over and he said, you, you don't look very happy. And I said, well, I just, I'm, I've seen some of the reviews and, and I just thought we'd created something amazing. And he said, uh, 
He said, did any of the reviews say that he didn't look real? I said, uh, no. Did any of the reviews say that he didn't feel like he was in the scene? I said, no. He said, did, did all the reviews actually treat him like he was a, an actor in the movie? I said, uh, yeah, they did. He said, well, then you did your job, didn't you? Because they just don't like him as a character. That's got nothing to do with the work that you did. You should be happy with his reviews because they treated your character like he was real. I'm like, okay, thanks, George. Appreciate that. I mean, don't get me wrong. This was very nice of George Lucas. But the criticism was still in the air, and it surprised Rob. It had never dawned on me because I lived in that bubble, as I said, where I was working with a man who wanted it. I had worked with this incredibly generous actor who had given everything into the performance. The actor he's talking about here is, of course, Ahmed, who had lived inside this same magical creative bubble. And he, too, was anxiously awaiting the film's release. When the movie had its premiere, how were you feeling? It was very complex. I caught wind of the media take very early on. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just, like, laughed it off. And the idea was, well, when the public sees it, all of that shit is going to go away. The bad reviews were one thing. But Ahmed was also plugged in to a different avenue for criticism. I was, and to this day, still very much technology forward, right? To put it in today's terms, Ahmed was very online. So I had computers. I had a website. I was on the web. I was in chat rooms. I, I, was, I was very web savvy at a, at a very young age. I was an early adopter. Now, public backlash is this incredibly real, but also totally intangible thing. So I wanted to know how these negative online reactions were reaching Ahmed in 1999. You're not trending on Twitter. This is Web 1.0. Mm-hmm. So how is this reaching you? So I saw the websites occur in real time, you know, putting pictures of Jar Jar's severed head and my severed head next to it mm-hmm. on websites. Mm-hmm. Really, really hateful things. One of the first things to say is that the internet and science fiction literally go hand in hand. This is Ethan Zuckerman. He's an early architect of the internet. And his resume is so long and so distinguished that if I told you about every impressive thing he's done, you'd actually think that this was a podcast about him. I think of him as an internet scholar, an internet wizard, but it's probably best to let him define himself on his own terms. I think these days I think of myself as an internet gray beard. Um, I have literally <laughs> grown the gray beard to sort of grow into yeah, it. Although I'm a I'm a gray beard who's very concerned with the future of the internet, and a lot of my work today is around trying to build internet communities 
that are more constructive and less hateful, uh, which leaves you and me working on some of the same issues. I've known Ethan for a few years now, and I figured that he would be the perfect person to help me, and let's be real, us, make sense of this unique moment in internet history that Ahmed was finding himself in. So I think maybe the first thing to say about the internet in 99 is that it crosses a really interesting demographic mark. By November of 1999, there is an estimated 100 million U.S. citizens online. It's one of the biggest years of the Internet's expansion. The Internet is here. It's a big thing. It's new. It's cool. It's being hyped. Behind the scenes, there's a really interesting transition going on. This is a transition from the few to the many, from the original architects of the Internet to its new tenants. In other words, the normies were infiltrating. And if you don't know what normie is, I'm so sorry, but that means that you are one. And just to be clear for writing a sentence like that, I am too. All you need to know is that 1999 is a tipping point. And so there's a little bit of a cultural collision of the folks who've largely been involved with building this new, more accessible internet. And you have this new 100 million people in the U.S. saying, oh, this is really interesting. And you mean that I can contribute to this? I can have my say? I I suspect I have things to say. And the way these millions of users are saying these things is on message boards, in Usenet groups, in forums. But one of the loudest ways to be heard on the internet was through domain names. People are putting up simple websites. And people who have a wacky or strange idea are sometimes just taking their own little corner of the internet and putting it out for people to stumble on. And many of those web pages are fan pages. Uh, And they might also be anti-fan pages. But they are something that someone is passionate about. There was a whole culture around the blank sucks domain. So if you had a bad experience with National Rent-A-Car, you would go out and register nationalrentacarsucks.com. And it got to the point where brands were being advised to buy their sucks domains. As you may have already guessed, we are including this because there was indeed a jarjarsucks.com. It's no longer easy to find, but my producer Amy found it on the Wayback Machine. So, like two neighborhood teens in a coming-of-age action-adventure movie, we pack our proverbial backpacks and push open the door. Um, So it's a pretty bare-bones site. It is what it looks like. Seemingly untouched since it was last altered at the turn of the millennium, we see a very late 90s ad hanging over the entryway. It's the penthouse ad, the banner jarjarsex.com with a photo of Jar Jar's head. With uh, accentuated eyes. Mm-hmm. 
And they have him saying something unkind. As we tiptoe through this old relic, it's as if we're seeing a digital manifestation of that lump in Rob's stomach, the tangible version of those complex feelings that Ahmed felt after the movie premiered. We're exploring an old, abandoned, haunted house. In the foyer, God, I always feel rich and unhinged when I say it that way. In the foyer, we're greeted with a menu in all its grainy glory. So I was excited to find the website and then slightly terrified to click on these links and see where they go. This menu has five buttons. Truth, Jar Jar Defenders, Gallery, Multimedia, and Links. The gallery button has added text on it that says new 18 and over gallery added, which is, I'm assuming, Jar Jar porn? Now, I am not one to kink shame, but Amy and I choose to not go into that room. Amy scrolls down the page. And then you you can kind of see, like, an apology at the bottom. And please pardon the sloppy design. I only have 5.05 minutes a day to work on this, so cut me some slack. This web portal is brought to you by the SFTBOSMP, the Society for the Betterment of Stupid Movie Puppets. For more information on how you can make a difference, please email admin at jarjarsucks.com. Interesting. We click that first button, the one labeled Truth, where we find notes from visitors. And I can pull a couple of these that I think mm. that you should look at. Um, so yeah, start with this, dear sir or madam. Dear sir or madam, after seeing The Phantom Menace, I searched the internet for anti-Jar Jar web pages. After 15 seconds, I found you. Thank you. Huh. Can't wait for you to add more content to your site. Jar Jar absolutely ruined the movie for me. I'll be cheering the hardest in episode two if the first scene consists of his whole race getting annihilated. Jeff. Oh my god. He's talking, I I hope, about the Gungan race. Amy and I take a look at five more notes. And these notes offer a window into the sort of community that's being built around hating Jar Jar. They express parallel thought. Just today, we were talking about registering JarJarBinksSucks.com. Solidarity. Thank God, myself and my friends aren't the only ones. The Gungans themselves were no problem, but Jar Jar, man oh man, please hurt him plenty. Hyperbole. May your page serve as a safe haven for those unfortunate souls who can no longer be productive members of society due to the damage inflicted by having to sit through the myriad of jar-jarring scenes in The Phantom Menace. Thanks again, Matt. Proposals? What we want to do is make jar-jar death movies. And even confessions. Hi, if jar-jar Binks were drowning, I would throw him a stone. Just want to say two things about these notes. One, there's something deeply familiar about them. The hyperbolic way that a lot of these writers were expressing themselves is exactly how we see people exaggerate online today. You don't just not like someone. You want to accelerate their drowning. And you aren't simply bothered by something. That something affects your ability to be a productive member of society. Now, the second thing I want to say about these letters is that it shows you just how much people were communicating through websites. 
I mean, many of these people are expressing that they came across this page by searching. Some are even claiming that they had the idea first. To be honest, walking through this abandoned site feels a little eerie. Some of it is clearly written as a joke, heavy quotes around joke, but compiled together, it starts to become genuinely a little spooky. Amy navigates us to a new page. So this is the gallery. Mm. This is like early memes. Amy's right. This would be instantly recognizable today. Jar Jar in front of the atomic bomb, Jar Jar with his head exploded, Jar Jar being stabbed by three samurai swords. And I think getting an injection. Uh, Kill Jar Jar Binks as a kind of like merch box, a game we would like to see. Um, Liam Neeson mourning over a dead Jar Jar Binks. I mean, this is pretty graphic. Top 10 ways we wish Jar Jar Binks had died in The Phantom Menace. God, that's so, this is so dark. Amy and I, still in up-to-no-good neighborhood teen mode, aren't done exploring. That's in just a minute. We are back. So in addition to JarJarSucks.com, there were actually quite a few other anti-Jar Jar websites. And these were the kind of websites that Ahmed was encountering. There was JarJarBinksMustDie.com, the Jar Jar Hate webpage. You get the idea. They popped up within days of the film's release. Ethan alerted me to another webpage that he found. I was able to find um, the Kill Jar Jar Binks Now webpage. God bless. And what I thought was so interesting about it is that this piece is part of a Jar Jar Binks hate web ring. To extend the metaphor, JarJarSucks.com was a lone haunted house. The Jar Jar Binks hate web ring, though, creates a sort of haunted housing development. Web rings were a way to navigate from one personal homepage to another. And it was this idea that if you wanted to talk about Star Wars and someone else wanted to talk about Star Wars, you could link your pages together and you could navigate from one to the next of them. But what this suggests to me is in 1999, there were enough people posting Jar Jar Binks hate websites to have a Jar Jar Binks hate web ring, which really does sound like kind of a very specific sub-community in all of this. Amy and I poke around the Kill Jar Jar Binks Now page that's in this new sub-community. Greeting us as we enter is a sort of mission statement. He says, if Jar Jar was in a Disney movie, which, joke's on you, it's now a Disney movie, where he should yeah. have been, <laughs> yeah. I would have had absolutely no problem with him. Just like, I might not like Big Bird, but I have no desire to kill him. Nor do I hate him for anything. But, in all caps, Jar Jar was a character that was in a movie that I have waited forever for and was totally unnecessary comic relief. 
He was a child's character, and his slapstick, immature antics didn't belong in Star Wars. This was a common refrain in many of these complaints, that Jar Jar is a kid's character in what they wanted to be a grown-up movie. Also, just because I have a webpage called Kill Jar Jar Binks Now doesn't mean if I saw Jar Jar Binks on the street one day, I would find the first sharp object I could find and assault him. I just dislike him and decided to make a humorous webpage about it. It's funny. Laugh a little. And if you don't find it funny, move on. This feels incredibly recognizable. This act of self-protection by calling everything just a joke. There's almost no comeback to this. If you're offended, you're part of the problem. You're a pearl-clutching normie who needs to lighten up. Anyway, off my soapbox. Amy and I keep clicking around. I mean, he's saying, even though I have a webpage called Kill Jar Jar Binks Now, doesn't mean I would harm him. But then... (gasps) Okay, here is why Amy just gasped. As Amy was talking, she left her mouse hovering over the link that reads, Kill Him Now. And you know how when you hover your cursor over a hyperlink, there's a box of alt text that appears? Well, an alt text box has just appeared, and it reads, Kill the homofuck right now. Don't delay. It's worth noting that this was a read that some people had about Jar Jar, that the character was gay. It's something Ahmed was even asked about directly. It's hard to tell, though, if this piece of alt text is a reference to that read or if it's true homophobia from the website's creator or if it's just that good old-fashioned atmospheric homophobia that hung like a cloud for so many of us in the 90s. The cloud that taught us that gay and bad and annoying were all synonyms. The cloud that deluded us into thinking that gay jokes were truly funny. Jokes that some of us laughed along with, sometimes even the loudest, so that that terrifying eye of suspicion would never fall on us. It's going to sound so sad, but just know that I'm totally okay and I'm really glad that we saw this. But I think there's something like seeing that kind of language in that kind of font, because the font is all preserved. No one has updated these pages, you know. Um, it, it doesn't have, it's, it's like none of these are designed by Squarespace. <laughs> you know, they're like, they're all basic HTML that was probably coded by the person who made the website who knows a thing or two about HTML. And there was something so dark about seeing it because it's like, I remember websites like these that were like of the time. And I remember just like this like darkness I would feel as I was like this closeted kid sifting through these websites, navigating past a minefield of gay slurs and gay jokes or like almost gay slurs like homofuck, you know? And it's, um, it like hurts to see, I'm sharing this all out loud, I guess, because if I feel this way, I cannot imagine what Ahmed felt as he was 
sifting through this like new digital public square. This was coming directly at me. Star Wars fans turned Jar Jar haters seemed to be upset at Ahmed for a number of reasons. Ruining their childhood, ruining their fantasies, ruining Star Wars. You know, they really believed in, believe Mm -hmm. in this force, this religion, you know. I Mm -hmm. think that's one of the brilliance of George Lucas. He really turned Star Wars into a religion. Right. Which is why it's so ubiquitous and loved by so many people. But people really take that personally. Right. And so they blamed me for that. Yeah. Me. They blamed him in forums and on websites online, but their animosity soon outgrew their digital containers. When things break on the internet, it doesn't really tip until traditional media grabs a hold of it and 10x is it, right? I think going viral and just having it stay in the ecosystem of the internet is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, because websites were the new thing, the hot thing, traditional media picked up what was going on and just ran with it. Hating Jar Jar Banks was becoming a story. Our resident internet graybeard, Ethan, he actually pointed this out to me too. I went back and did some of the reading of what people were writing about Jar Jar in 1999, and there's a pattern that will feel very, very familiar to you, which is that it's someone in CNN or in Time Magazine or Salon writing and saying, the internet is upset about... And then they will quote a couple people on the internet, and then they will build out the critique, they will bring in an academic to it, and... Essentially, this ping pong between these online spaces and these traditional media spaces, which we are so familiar with right now, is firmly in place in 1999. These stories have headlines like Jar Jar is no star star and computer age speeds backlash and Jar Jar Jar's viewers. These are actual headlines that ran in actual newspapers across the country and in outlets like CNN. And these stories, they collate the hate. I can only think to call them hate aggregators because they collect the websites, the takes, and even the very worst snippets from the reviews, and they present them to the reader as if they're reporting on a worldwide phenomenon. So this idea that the internet, instead of internet hate, legitimates a topic of conversation. The internet is saying it, therefore we as serious people can talk about it. It might not make sense to say, we're going to write a think piece about Jar Jar Binks, but when we can hang it on jarjarbinksdiediediedie.com, suddenly it becomes legitimate. And that pattern plays out today. It was fascinating to look back and and see it in place almost 25 years ago. And this is when it clicks for me. This is precisely how the anti-Jar Jar sentiment gained momentum. The reviews, they were not great, sure, 
but that was just a piece of it. Meanwhile, online, hating Jar Jar Binks was becoming a trend. And then when that trend was reported on by traditional media and mixed in with snippets of those bad reviews, it became a capital S story. It's a story that we can all recognize quite easily today. But it was completely novel in 1999. I think there is the possibility that the Phantom Menace is a singularity of some sort. That the sheer density of attention and hype sort of creates something that is both a point of gravity in sort of mainstream culture and a point of gravity in internet culture. And because it's such a powerful gravitational attractor, these two worlds, which really don't have much to do with one another, end up colliding because they're attracted to the black hole that is the Phantom Menace. And it just crystallizes in Jar Jar. And then in this case, it crystallizes around a human who did not have any reason to suspect that he personally would end up sort of the subject of this hatred. This digital hate campaign against Jar Jar, it was spilling into the physical realm for Ahmed in other, more dangerous ways, too. I started getting um, death threats, phone calls. Um, Just directly, they found directly. your number. My number was leaked onto the internet, and um, people would call my number and threaten Mm-hmm. My death, to wait, I, I just couldn't really fathom that. You know what I'm saying? I just didn't right. know how to handle that. Like, this is a character I played, mm. you know? But if you can believe it, that was only part of the story. Well, I was just thinking that you just share with me all of the articles you found. Uh, this is from Salon. Okay. The headline is Star Wars Lovers. I had found a lot of coverage in mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Times. A galaxy far, far off mm-hmm. racial mark. Star Wars and stereotypes. Is Jar Jar Binks a racist character? This was syndicated in a lot There's this sense that Star Wars has not been kind to its non-white characters. And it feels in many ways kind of stuck in the past. So the death threats were one thing. The websites were another thing. It wasn't until it reached my neighborhood that I was I, I didn't want to leave my apartment. That was the hardest part. That hardest part is next time. Redemption of Jar Jar Binks is a part of the TED Audio Collective. It's produced by Amy Gaines McQuaid, Jacob Smith, and me, Dylan Marin. Our editors are Ban Ban Cheng and Michelle Quint. Additional editing by Jimmy Gutierrez and Alejandra Salazar. Production support from Roxanne High Lash. Mastering by Ben Tolliday, who also made our theme with help from Jason Gambrell. Additional production help from Nisha Venkut, 
fact-checking by Kate Williams with Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Greta Cohn and Dan O'Donnell.